Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, we've got Chad Sutton. Chad was a great interview guest, very knowledgeable, smart guy. They've done a lot of cool projects ranging from starting out in single family, like a lot of folks do, all the way up to doing multifamily projects all around the country with with his team at Quattro Capital. He's also a podcast host, Uh, really smart guy. He was an engineer, worked on some, some great projects in his corporate career before making that switch over to real estate. So he shares some tenant stories, how he's financed stuff, what the team looks like today. I think if you're a passive investor, you're going to learn a lot. If you're an aspiring operator, you're going to learn a lot from Chad's story as well. And just all around uh, nice guy, very knowledgeable, easy to talk to. And I enjoyed this episode. We ran a little bit longer than usual because uh, uh, sometimes people are just really easy to talk to. And Chad was, was one of them. So I enjoyed our time. Before we jump into the episode, if you want to see future DJE projects, we release a handful of projects per year to our investor base. You need to get on our list first. If you're not already on there, you can go to djetexas.com and just book a quick call with our team. We can share case studies and let you know about all the stuff we've been doing in Texas for almost the last decade now. Uh, Secondly, if you are an aspiring operator, you want to go run these deals, you want to do stuff like I do or like Chad does, we've got a a coaching program and a whole ecosystem and to start some free videos that you can go see at apartmenteducators.com if you want to, uh, if you're aspiring to to go run these types of projects yourself in the future, go check out apartmenteducators.com. All right, guys, I know you're going to like this episode. Let's jump in with Mr. Chad Sutton. Here we go. Chad, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Devin, I'm blessed. Happy to be here. And and I'm fresh out of the newborn cycle with uh, my second child. So if you see bags under the eyes, I'm glad the audience can't see them. But you know, here I am. <laughs> they can see them. This will be on YouTube. But most of it is uh, is an audio download on Spotify or, uh, or Apple. Well, listen, man, congrats on number two, uh, boy or girl. Yeah, it's a boy. So have a I have a three year old, a little girl who we had first, and who's counting? If you if you count the dog, that was that makes three kids, right? That's right. Uh, but yeah, little boy, and everyone's happy, healthy. We're just uh, mom and dad are just trying to catch up. Love it, man. Well, congratulations. That's a uh, very finite time of life, right? Like that that little period doesn't last long. It feels like it lasts long when you're in it, but it goes pretty quick, as everybody says. But uh, congrats, man. So. So growing the family, um, trying to balance being a businessman and a father, and that that's that's uh, we could record episodes and episodes of podcasts about that. We'll talk a little about that, but right. let's talk a little bit about your your background. So for folks listening, you know we talk a lot about multifamily, a lot about real estate, a lot about entrepreneurship. But what's your background? And you know we're here talking today because of your your investment company, but you know take a step back and and you know. Where are you from and how'd you, how'd you get to real estate? Yeah, Devil, I'm, I'm glad you asked. And, uh, you know, it goes way, way back. Okay. I'm actually a third generation real estate investor. I didn't know it for a long time. Oh, that's um, funny. Yeah, it is funny. So my, my grandparents bought a large portfolio of single family real estate late in their career. Um, and they kind of figured it out on their own, you know, that, so we, we, um, what market was that in? It was in Waco, Texas. So okay. an area you know very well. 
Yeah, everybody knows Waco, maybe not for the best reasons, but yeah. lately it's kind of undergone kind of a renaissance, right? Um, yes, that's right. Lately, thanks. I think the reason would be Fixer Upper and, and that TV show, but previous yep. to that, it was other reasons that we don't have to get into on the podcast. When were they buying in Waco? Was this like a long time ago, it 50 years been, ago? Or? No, not 50 years ago. It would have been the 90s, I think. Okay, okay. Right. So in, so, in kind of recent memory for, for me and you. And, yeah, and- yeah, that's right. So so most of my life, they've owned property in Waco. And I worked on them as a kid, Devin. I mean, I've always worked with my hands. So that, that was, you know, I, I've gained some trade skills that way, if you will. Sure. But I was always encouraged to go to school and get a good job and work for a big company because that was the American dream, right? That's right, yeah. Uh, and, and I think they were still figuring this out until much later in my life. And so I don't know if they were quite ready to encourage their, their family to go into it as well. Um, so, you know, fast forward several years, I watched them own those. Um, I went to school, became an engineer. You know, I was always great with numbers and building blocks and things of that sort. So the world told me to be an engineer, Devin. I became an engineer and I worked for large companies like, or as a civil servant for organizations like NASA back when the space shuttle was still flying. Wow. I worked for General Electric, uh, building most of the commercial airline engines you would be, you would fly around on today. So I did a lot of really hardcore engineering work for a long time and a lot of simultaneous things happened, right? I looked down and I realized, well, gee whiz, I'm getting really, really good at this one thing. And that was combustion analysis and design, right? I knew how to make, th- I knew how to light things on fire, get a lot of power out of it, right? Suck, squeeze, bang, blow, right? I'm really impressed you know that. Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. That is the oh, simplest way of how yeah. an aircraft engine works. Do you, do you have a background there as well? I'm a pilot, yeah. Okay, you know it. Fantastic. <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, that was the first, uh, you know, real simple um, explanation of how, an engine works. And so I worked in the bang section, right? I, I was where we, we let stuff off on fire. And I realized that, you know, I looked up after about my third design program, you know, I worked on, so if you're a pilot, I worked on the triple seven X for Boeing. I worked on the seven, three, seven max. Uh, I worked on uh, some of the Embraer stuff that we put out. So a lot of, you know, small to, to large range. Oh, and the seven, eight, seven Dreamliner. That was a, that was a pinnacle. Right? Those are some wild projects to be involved in, you know, professionally. That's pretty cool. It was really fun. You know, it was a good time to be a young engineer in, in an sure. industry where a lot of the older workforce had been laid off because of prior uh, prior down cycles, right? Well, I came in at the right time when the work was just exploding. You know, everyone was re-engineering aircraft, new aircraft were being designed. So it was a really cool time to kind of gain your chops as an engineer, right? So I, I don't regret any of it. I had a blast, you know, met some great people. I was very rarely the smartest guy in the room, in the rooms I was in, which was a good place to be. Yep. But what I realized, Devin, is I'm, I'm a very highly paid worker is, is all it is. And, and what I discovered is every program I did, they were always trying to do it in shorter amounts of time and with less resources. And I, I finally realized if a company could develop the product and sell it without the engineering workforce, they would do it. We're a necessary evil. Right? Yep. And then I also realized, you know, I looked to my left and I looked to my right at, at my cubicle after I finished my third design program. I was like, wow, I see my, my, my principal engineer down there who's very senior in years. And I see my lead engineer in front of me. I was like, I'm just, I'm a, that's my path. I'm going to be very good at doing this one thing. And I can work for three companies in the world. Well, that scared me. Right. And so that, so that, told me to diversify myself. And, and right around that time was when the GE stock price crashed. I'm sure you all remember that. 
we formed a bunch of internal uh, uh, consulting teams, kind of like an internal McKinsey and Deloitte. And I was fortunate enough to fly around the world, go to every GE center in the world with the sole purpose of how do we improve the, the bottom line of the profit and loss statement. And, and so having that product design brain, I was able to help with manufacturing and product redesigns and things like that. So I kind of got to go be a consultant before kids came and just fly around, which was really cool. Right. Pretty um, demanding schedule there, right? It was, it was, but yeah. it was really cool. Right. So, so I, For sure. I gave my business savvy and my analytical skills and things like that from there, which have really translated what well, I negotiation, by the way, I did a lot of international negotiation in uh, uh, supplier contracts in, in that job as well. So that kind of made me what I am today. And then simultaneously, another path was happening. My grandfather, who was a huge influence in my life, passed away in 2016. You know, it was a pretty heart-wrenching end to a, to a fan, you know, big Texas man's life, you know. Um, but nonetheless, it happened. Well, all of a sudden, my, one of my business partners, Kim Winland, who is our director of asset management today, um, she stepped in and took over the family portfolio. And all of us, and right around the same time, I was asking questions. I mean, tell me one person who hasn't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and had a paradigm shift, right? I was reading those kind of books yep. because I was like, wait a minute, I'm making a lot of money. I'm paying a lot of money in taxes. I'm getting a 3% year over year raise unless I get a promotion, which is barely keeping up with inflation. I was like, how, how do people get wealthy in this country? What am I doing wrong? I'm, I'm working for the shareholders right now. Yeah, you did all the right things, right? Yeah, you did all the right things. I, why am I not there? You know, right. Why am I not any better than I was five years ago? Right. And um, that's where all those books came in. And, and simultaneously, my, my now business partner was taking over the real estate portfolio. And we just found all these common denominators in the wealth story. Like you can go be an Elon Musk and change the world, which is, you know, God bless him. But 99 out of 100, Elon Musk don't make it, right? It's, it's really hard to do that. Uh, you can go invest in the stock market or other assets, but there's a really common denominator in, in wealthy families in real estate. Going back to like the King of England, you know, way, That's way right. back in the day, you know, land leases was one of the earliest forms of wealth. And so all that started to formulate into a, a plan of, well, how do we do this? And so I started trying to create the Tennessee version of our single family portfolio in, in Texas. And that was hard because at this time, Nashville, who doesn't know about Nashville, Tennessee, right? It's been a top performing market in the country for, for about 10 years now, was exploding. You could right. not purchase. I mean, every, for all of you multifamily people out there, there is the sales comp method, which most single family homes are sold by, which is like, well, what did your neighbors pay for it? That's what it's worth. And then there's the income method, which we value multifamily properties on mostly. And, and that define, that's, that's based on how much money it makes, right? Well, I realized you just cannot purchase a home that cash flows in Tennessee at this time, unless you're buying something that's like falling apart. So we stepped back again and, and I, I took a, a friend of mine out to lunch who, you know, He's my age. He and his father have been doing, uh, you know, acquiring multifamily properties for quite, you know, quite some time now. Some with their own capital, some with with that of private equity and, and uh, JV equity. And I asked him, I was like, how, how are you doing this? You know, and he handed me a book and I wish I still had it on my bookshelf, but I've lent it out probably 500 times. It was written by David Lindahl and it was a little blue book that's called Multifamily Millions. And it was one of the many books out there talking about how to syndicate, acquire, operate, and perform value add plans on these things and really, and, and how the economics work. Right. And Devin, I couldn't put it down. I, yeah. I just, I couldn't put it down. 
and so that led to 10 other books like that i'm, I'm a reader you know and I, 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 as you can tell behind me here on the bookshelf and so i got my partner and we got on the first boot camp we could find and then we went to two and three and five and ten and, and we just we learned as much as we could for probably a year before we ever bought a property and then we got up enough confidence and we said, you know what, we're going to sell a few single family homes. We're going to take some of our money and we're going to go buy a multifamily property. And we did. We hooked up with two other partners of ours and bought a transaction or bought a property in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then that property led to two and then three and then five and then 10 and then 15. And we just kept going. And, and that, that group organically became Quattro Capitals because we discovered, wow, we really round out each other well. We have... We have, you know, good white glove service with our equity relations. We have top-notch industry pros working with us who are, do, who are running our asset management. We have, you know, uh, you know, I, I spend most of the time on the acquisition side just because financial analysis pro formas, knowing how things go together and come apart, that's, that's a specialty of mine. I, I enjoy that, you know, and so we just, we found success. And then eventually came some early exits, you know, and, and, and that really, um, got us to the point where we've kind of been tea to green on things and, and really, you know, gone full cycle and have that credibility. And here we are, Devin. So it was really a, a very organic path that, right. that, you know, a couple of things came together. The timing was right. And, and, oh, by the way, you know, early, for, I don't know how, how long uh, uh, DJU has been in business, but we're, we still feel like we're kind of a teenage company, right? Mm -hmm. we, we survived and operated at a very, very, profitable state and, and um, I'll say high level of acuity through COVID. And that, that was like earning your battle stripes early. I think stressing <laughs> right. the team early was a really good thing. So I've never been more proud of the team and, and that's how we got to where we are today. So I, I hope that wasn't too long of a story, but you know, here we are. No, I love it. I would say that's probably incredibly condensed. There's a lot in there. What was that first asset? How big, you know, how much equity, how much debt? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, and, I'm, and I actually made some mistakes here, right? It's just funny. You, you read everything and until you really do it, you just, you just Oh yeah. Right. I, I say you got, I mean, we, we've got some coaching clients and other people we talk to about the stuff all the time. I think you get about half of it through a full force education. I mean, meeting people, reading stuff, touring properties, right. studying, doing all of it. You get about half of it. Right. Other half you got, you get, you get, which really stinks, right? You would hope yeah. to get like 90% of it from education, but I think you get about half and another half, man, you, you got to go do it. You just have to do it. That's right, Devin. And, and the, you know, the good thing is that 50%, those are usually going to be your like, put you out of the game mistakes. You're going to learn That's right. not yep. make those, right? Yep. You're still, there's the other 50% are the smaller ones. So it's kind of like Pareto's law. You're getting 80% of the, of the good stuff that make yep. sure you don't end yourself or lose money. Yeah. But so anyway, we, we bought a 35 unit property that was, it was actually a unique asset. It, it was in uh, North Knoxville, Tennessee. A, a That's a good size for, for a first deal. I mean, right. Coming from some single family stuff and, and jumping in, that's, that's good. It really was. And, you know, we bought it at 2.65, 2.65 million dollars. Yep. Um, which now it's worth, you know, Knoxville's done crazy things. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sell it for a lot of money, but it's, um, yeah. So we bought that property. It was a unique story that this architect had actually had a house up on the hill and about every, you know, we joke about it. Every time he got mad at his wife, he went out back and built an eight plex and, and over about <laughs> 10 or 15 years, he had 35 units, you know, 
So, a lot of fights. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it was just kind of that. Every time we'd show it to the insurance uh, people, uh, agents who were bidding it, like, wait, how many how many years of construction do you have here? He's like, yes, they started in 1980, and the newest one's in 1995. So that's hilarious. They all look the same though, and they're thoughtfully built. I mean, it was just a yeah. great asset to start with, you know. Yep. Um, we brought to we, we brought to the table uh, six hundred and five thousand dollars in equity of of our own money it was but amongst the four partners who bought it together wanted to really make sure we knew how to do this and we could prove it out before we had the burden of paying you know investors a spread on yeah I, I love that approach i mean i did my first multifamily unit deal the same way as six units right it wasn't 35 but it was all my money me and the bank i just could not envision taking on capital yet you know um yeah, yeah. And I, just, I don't know, it's easy to say now, like, ah, go into 100 plus units, you get all these efficiencies, there's all this stuff, raising capital is easy. It's easy for you, right? You've done it a bunch. It's easy for us, because yeah. we point to these full cycle deals. But boy, starting out, I just really, really uh, like that approach of just, hey, it's your money, it's partner's money, let's do proof of concept on our own yeah. nickel. And uh you know, probably wasn't the most efficient deal you could have done. No, I just really like that approach, though. <laughs> yeah, and it, it really, you know, and, and the funny thing is, we operated it for probably two or three months. Like, okay, this is working. We're gonna go, you know, in the next deal we did. Sure. Was, yeah, you kind of checked the box, project. right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we, we figured out that okay, this thing isn't blowing up, and and bank's not taking it back thirty days in. You know, we're we're doing okay. We got the right, right teams. So you know, all those limiting beliefs, and they're just limiting beliefs, Devin. We could have gone yes. into a hundred unit, and we probably could have been fine, but we just didn't want the. We just mitigated the risk of not having to worry about our credibility with capital until we knew we could do it. You know, I love it, and I'm sure your investors appreciate that. And I, th I think that's yeah. a great move. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, the, the thing I did wrong there, um, had I bought this today, I probably would have put a bridge note on it, you know, mm -hmm. so something and something with extensions. You don't never want to get caught having to refi in a bad time, but sure. usually the bridges we've done are like, you know, two or three years plus one plus one. So that's two extensions for a fee. So that can, that can get you, that can spread you pretty far if you have to get through something. Um, but you know, there was just so much value in this building, you know, it's now worth 3.6, you know, and, and it's not been that long, you know, so if we, um, it, it would have been better to refi, but instead we put a Freddie Mac small balance loan on it. Right. And sadly, the small balance loan program does not allow second, you, you can't do a cash out refinance. With right. It. it comes with a big prepay. So we kind of yep. call that dead equity. We have dead equity, yep. that, you know. Or can, I mean, if the Freddie SBL is a great product, you know, if, if the step down prepays an option, but even that, you know, you, you're looking so at um, yeah. something to watch out for anybody listening, getting into deals. It's, you know, low rate fixed debt is a beautiful thing, but that usually the, the backside of that is, is this prepay and you see deals out there. I see deals out there where somebody has got a $2 million prepay. They're not getting out of it, you know, until, yeah. until they can burn some of that off. So that's definitely a big gotcha to, to watch out for. And such a common story, right? With like yeah. first deals yeah. is like, oh, the low rate sounded great. And somebody told me to lock it in and, you know, I'm going to hold this thing for seven years. And it's like, well, you're probably going to hold it for two, you know, yeah, exactly. in, in reality. Exactly. And, and like, let's talk about that for a second, because you bring some good points there we could have even done this a little bit better and like, because you can, you're not going to get the best rate this way, but you can do a five-year yield maintenance. Like we did the full 10 year term yield maintenance. So I've got up to like nine and a half years. I've got to pay a lot of money to, to terminate that loan. Right. Yep. Um, which it is what it is. 
and we're going, we're probably going to do that when we sell it, but it, you know, it's a lesson learned. We could have, to Devin's point, we could have done a step down prepay, which is, it depends, but it might be like 5%, 4%, 3%, 2% of the loan over five years, you know, yep. you'll pay a little more in rate. Um, but there's ways we could have done that better. Whereas the best route would have been take it down with a local bank. I use local banks as bridge loans all the time, by the way, because they right. usually don't have a prepay. They'll usually give you 18 months IO, some CapEx in the loan. They'll give you good a, rate. Yeah, good rate. And 3.75 yep. is my latest one. Now, is, is recourse a factor on those or and that you're okay with? Point. It's an it's okay trade? It is an okay trade for us. Um, yep. We we don't like recourse and we're, you have to sure. be careful with it because it's not because we're worried projects are going to go bad, Devin. But it's a contingent liability, and banks know this. When when a yep. bank when a bank uh, underwrites you, they're going to look at all your recourse loans and lower your net worth based on you know based on that. So yep. it kind of dings your scorecard, if you will, to, to use Robert Kiyosaki's term, right? Yep. Your, your Such policy. a great point. Yep. So that that's our problem with it. But what I've been successful with, and guys, everything is negotiable in the space. Everything. Go to the bank and say, look. I could do a Freddie Mac SBL loan like this. I could, I really could. But you know, this is local. This is a local deal. We'd like to put it with a local bank. You know, we have a vision for this property. They love, they love investing in the community. Sure. And they're like, look, but hey, here's the deal. You know, we we can't do a full joint and several recourse. Like, you don't. We have five partners. You don't need five hundred percent of the loan guarantee. Right. 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 So so break it up. Like maybe you want an aggregate of, of adding us all together. It's one hundred and five percent or something, or one hundred twenty five percent. And so what we'll often do is individually limit our liability pretty far. Um, but we never intend to keep those loans longer than a year and a half, you know? Right. So um, it, it, it's a risk, it's a risk tolerance thing. But you're, you're using a local bank kind of in place of a bridge, you're getting better terms. You're taking some limited recourse for a finite period of time. That's a lot. That's a, that's a good play. And then you refi out into some not full, fully non-recourse yeah. stuff. And I want to preface that because I don't want to get our listeners in trouble here. Um, if you got a rough property that's got high delinquency, high vacancy, like you're going to need a real bridge loan for that. Yeah, that's bank's right. Not, bank's yeah. not going to touch that. But if like this, this property, it was already stabilized. It was 95% occupied. It was just low rent. Like we, we had, we had the ability to, you know, organically and with some slight renovation increase, take a, a stabilized property and make it higher rent stabilized property. So that that's where that really shines is, is those textbook value adds where it's kind of already pretty stabilized, you know? Sure. Yeah. That's a great point. There's this whole spectrum between stabilized and just total, uh, war zone properties. And, uh, you know, you know, there's, a, there's a spectrum there, but if you're on the cleaner side, that reduces your risk in a lot of ways, makes it palatable to take on some of that, that recourse debt for a little bit up front. And I've done all of them. I'm sure you have as well. We, we've, we've done a class D property. I'll probably never do one again. It's just, there's not, I don't have enough hair in my head to, to deal with that again. <laughs> Um, you know, amen to that. <laughs> yeah. And we, and we've done, you know, ones where we're basically taking over something that's 60% occupied, you know, yep. and, and that's, those are good. Those are worth it because I mean, we're going to double value on that in 18 months, not, not equity value. So, right. it's, uh, you know, those can be really, really powerful as well, but it's a different business plan. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You got to figure out what, uh, what you're up for, what your team's up for, know what you're getting into. And at the end of the day, like if you're raising capital, uh, what's the investor return metric, you know? And if you can, if you could do something cleaner, bigger, more stabilized and still hit your investor returns or beat it, do, you know, do it. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes those, those crazy hairy ones, 
equate to a lot of value. And so sometimes they don't just because it's beat up and 50% occupied doesn't mean it's a deal necessarily. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most and, people are chasing like high cap rates, right? And right. that's, that's good to a point, but you got to ask yourself if you're buying, if you're if in, in this market, if you're buying something that's an eight cap rate, you better be careful because something's wrong with it. And it might There's be a, a reason. 14 cap rate when you sell it. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, somebody told me that cap rates are measure of desirability of the asset. Yes. And, you know, there's a reason it's, it's high. That's, that's less desirable. And there's, uh, <laughs> there's some behind those numbers there for sure. You better, better be ready to deal with. That's right. A good friend of mine, Dan Hanford with passiveinvesting.com says it best. So, so they, they exclusively buy low cap rate assets, like yeah, that's right. three and a half to four, you know, yeah. and that's their business strategy. But it, it goes into risk reward, right? If I'm sure. going to go take down, and we can talk about this class, the asset has got some pretty funny stories, but if I go take down something like that with investor capital, you know, that's high risk. Like there, there is a lot of risk. It won't cash flow for a while. There is, but so they're going to expect, investors are going to expect, and you should expect a higher return. Like it better be better than 25%, you know, for something that risky. But if you're going to go and buy a class A luxury building where it's stabilized, white collar uh, tenants, they always pay their rent. Maybe it's in right. a tech space where everything is really, really uh, stable. You know, I mean, the tech industry just killed it through COVID, right? Everyone's sure. work remotely. Oh, yeah. Do, you know, um, when you look at assets like that, your return is going to be lower, but you're probably going to have a much higher probability of getting that return, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, that's something to think about there, but what Dan says, it, you know, it, you gotta, if you think about the cap rate and the fact that, you know, cap rate is your net operating income over the, the price that the asset would sell or pay or, or be, bought, be bought for. Well, if you rearrange that equation and say, well, if I'm going to add a dollar in NOI, you know, net operating income, and I divide by my cap rate, if you're at a 10 cap rate or even an eight cap rate, you know, that's just for simple numbers that, you know, that 10 cap rate is going to, to equate to basically the same, you know, a certain amount of money. But if you, if you buy it at a five cap rate, you, that $1 is now worth twice as much as that, as it would be at a 10 cap rate. So while you may or may not cash flow as strongly as one of these, you know, uh, really busted assets that you go and really just turn the NOI around your appreciation is going to be much higher on a low cap rate asset. You know, even if you just, even if it stays flat or even if it decompresses by 50 basis points from a 5.5 to a six or something, or even a five to a 5.5, that multiplier effect is going to be really big. So that, that's, you know, I think that's one of the ways they rationalize it. Plus making sure they're, they're in core city centers and, and high acuity or high, um, not acuity. Uh, 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 I'm losing words here. Really, really good uh, job supported areas, right. Where they get right. white collar uh, individuals. Yeah. It's an interesting approach. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, your, your NOI increase on a low cap rate property is going to have a bigger impact on value for sure. Also, you know, none of us like to buy for appreciation and just hope for it, but it, it, it is happening and it's, it's going to happen. And trillions of dollars just got introduced to the economy in the last 18 months you know, you get all this new, uh, these new dollars chasing the same assets. Everything's used cars cost more stock markets through the roof. Everything's going to cost more. Right. So it's kind of an argument to be in some nicer assets that you've got low R and M number, you've got strong occupancy, all that stuff into the future. Um, 
you know, I, I think, I think that'll probably work out, work out well. And then there's just so many headaches in, um, I mean, look, I would say you put 300 people living together on a couple acres stuff, life's going to happen. Um, and, and it's just going to be less messy on, on a 2012 property versus a 1982 property. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all trade-offs and, 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 uh, I think the risk adjusted return there on those type of assets is going to be really good. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. I love that topic you just brought up because, you know, when you're looking at what assets you want to be investing in or buying today, which you, whether you're putting deals together or investing as LP equity, you need to think about this from both scenarios. So, you know, we started out doing, you know, mainly like 70s assets, right? You know, pretty yep. hard repositions and, and we yep. did well with them, right? But you have the challenge of cost overruns because you get behind the wall and you find, wow, this didn't, didn't anticipate that. We inspected as well as we could, but we couldn't see this, right? That's right. So you always have to really kind of budget for fluff and there's that risk. And then you have the, the, the more, what's the right term? Volatile resident base, you know? Um, Good way to put it. Volatile, yeah. And I do yep. have a story on that. Don't let me forget this. It's pretty funny. We'll <laughs> I with. bet. All right. Um, but- when you think about what's happening in today's economy, you know, if we, if we take out Chad and Devin's crystal ball here, you know, we, we have printed, this is a fact. We have printed 22%, I think was the number last I checked of the country's money supply is about 18 months old. That's right. Let that sink in. I mean, you know, that yep. um, I don't know what the total amount in, in there is, but, but that is, you know, that, that's, a subst- that's, that's a fifth guys. That's a fifth of the nation's money was, it was printed in the last 18 months. And I get why they did it. You know, currency is the lubrication that keeps the economic machine moving. I get it, but there are repercussions to every decision that you make. They could have let the economy seize up and we might've had a massive downturn like, like we did in a different, different reason, but like we did in 2008. Sure. So they chose to keep the wheels turning. Well, guess what happens now? You know, you hear all these people talking about this word inflation. You know, we had deflation in, in, in 2008. Now we're having inflation, whether you believe it or not. But I think 5.4% was the last number posted. Published number. And who published knows? Number. Published. Yeah. yeah. The and those are doctored, I promise you. <clears throat> no uh, doubt. You know, I mean, just look at single family homes, for example, across the nation. Those are up 24% in 12 months. 24%. Yep. Tell me that's not inflation. Which is pretty crazy how closely that maps to the money supply increase, right? Oh, wow. It's, I hadn't thought about that. It's then. a couple <laughs> of percentage points off. It's yeah, like, yeah. here's 22% uh, increase in money supply. And here's a 22% increase in asset value across a lot of things. We could point to a lot of assets that have increased Lumber. around that metric, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you couple supply and demand with that. And, and there's your problem. I mean, we, all that money wound up in people's bank accounts and institutions' bank accounts, and it got redeployed into assets. And guess what? We're having trouble getting people coming back to work. We're having to pay them more. Salaries are going up. So that, that is all inflation. Well, here's the thing. As a real estate owner, this is really good, right? Because banks are now, and you know, an example, I bought a deal in Chattanooga uh, about four months ago, another story, <laughs> but that was the, the best set of terms from a bank I've ever got. I got 3.75%. I got an 80% loan to cost. So they're covering my construction loan. Excellent. Two years of interest only. And I got a 25 year amp. You usually get like two out of three. You never get That's all right. Those, right? Yeah. Yep. So the reason is, and I was a good friend with the banker, we were talking about this. Like, look, one, we want an asset to be proud of in Chattanooga. It was a local bank. But two, all the stimulus money, where did it go? It went straight to people's bank accounts. 
And then that means it's on the bank's balance sheet. Well, now banks are in the business of making money and put money to work. They've got to, they're like, hey, we have all this money. We've got to get loaned out quick, right? Because yep. as soon as you put money in the bank, they have to let, they can lend out 10 times that. Yep. So the beauty of this is we, the, the fixed rate long-term debt that's cheap is not going anywhere as fast as inflation is coming. It will go up at some point, maybe sure. two years, maybe 10 years. I don't know. But that's abundantly available. So you can still get really cheap money in today's dollars for debt. Well, guess what? If, if we just assume those asset prices continue to go up with inflation, you're going to be paying the same debt payment in today's dollars as that asset price just continues to climb, you know, because you're putting your money in hard assets and the dollar and what people are willing to pay for it is, is, is you know, dollars depreciating and what people are willing to pay for it's going up. So you want to talk about creating arbitrage, you know, creating, creating the, the gap between your expenses and your, and your income. That's the way to do it. And now here's your premonition side. Cap rates are compressed. Do if I'm a, and, and our group, our group plays in the five to six cap range. We don't do sure. eight caps. We don't do three caps. Right. Right. But you know, if we're playing in that range, if I'm going to pay a five cap for something, would I rather pay a five cap for a sixties asset in Atlanta would I rather go down the road and buy an 85 asset? You know, so I'm, you buy nicer assets with the same kind of cap rate. Right. That have a stabler tenant base. And oh, by the way, this debt and, and, and value thing is widening. I can get my hands going the right way. Widening over time. What's not to love about this space? 100%. I mean, I think, you know, a number of years ago, you saw this stratification of cap rates according to asset classes. And now it's just been smashed together. So you're buying, just like you said, you're buying a 60s asset on a, you know, five cap or 90s asset, uh, you know, for negligible changes in cap rate and very real changes in operating experience yes. between those two. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a it's a great point. I mean, the cap rate discrepancy between asset classes is, is all but kind of disappeared. It's all been smashed together. Let's give you an example. You, you just brought us perfect segue to that story I've been wanting to tell. Operating All right. experience, okay? Yep. So, uh, let's just say that Chad bought two buildings, right? One building, and they both were bought at a six cap, six cap rate, okay? One building is a class D asset, and that, that means like we are basically in the roughest part of town. It's trending. I mean, there, there's a path of progress coming down. The city's revitalizing. It's trending. Fine. Really difficult tenant base. And, but it's got a lot of upside. We're talking $250 in rent increase. We got sure. a lot of renovations and we got to manage a resident base, right? A tenant base. I'm going to call this one a tenant base. It's a, I usually call my, my tenants residents because they're people, but this, this is tenant base. This is different. I'm going to explain why. <laughs> then I go over here and I buy a class B building, right? Or something that is like 1980, you know, a nicer 1980s asset, right? I'm going to call that class B finishes, right? And I pay the same cap rate for it. And I have a mixture of blue and white collar workers by choice, you know, and, and it's a pretty decent little asset. Well, the story that I have over here on the class D asset, you know, this is the kind of tenant base that you tell them they don't have to pay rent on TV. And they, they take, they take that seriously and say, I'm not paying rent. Right. That's right. They yep. also have no respect for what they live in. It, it's a product of what they've been brought up and it, it's, it's sad, but you know, no matter what you do nice for the, the residents, the tenants in this situation do not have any respect for the building. That, that, that's the difference in me with between tenants and residents is respect for the building. It's a good distinction. Yep. And I'll give you an example. We went in and dropped about $40,000 on an encapsulation program in these old basements because it, it, there were mold problems we needed to remediate. We knew that, right? 
we got this finished on June 30th, 2020. And then the 4th of July happened the next week. And I'll be darned if this tenant base didn't throw a block party, break into the basements, pull all the tarps out of the basements, encapsulated and made a slip and slide down MLK Boulevard. There you go. You know, like those kind of shenanigans, you just, you don't deal with, with, with certain mm-hmm. resident bases. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's the kind of, of operation that like you just can't predict. It's funny. I mean, you gotta, you gotta stop and laugh at it. In it's retrospect, like, wow, sure. Really? <laughs> you know, but you know, now we have to do this again. So it's um, those kind of things you just can't predict. And, and, and they're going to really have a huge impact on your operations. Whereas you buy the same asset over here, Maybe I've got to, you know, maybe I've still got to spend a little bit of money on the units. You know, maybe there's only a hundred dollar rent bump available, you know, for, for a renovated unit, but you're working with a much more, you're typically working with families, you're working with working, working class people, you know, who have respect for the building. And, you know, the, the project we did over here on the left side with class D, that was kind of a mission for us. We did it with our own capital. It was like, Hey, let's really revitalize this area. And we did it. We're, we're selling right. it because we don't want it anymore, but it, it was like, we really wanted to make an impact on the affordable housing in this area. Uh, and, and we actually, we, we use chair, we filled it with charity, uh, people who, uh, who, um, are, are backed by charities rather than market rate tenants, you know? Right. So it was a really cool mission, but you know, there are, you got to do that because you love it. You don't do, don't, don't just chase high cap rate, high return, because you're going to be dealing with a whole lot more gray hair situations than if you had just bought, you know, a comparable asset um, at the same cap rate that's much newer and has a, you know, a more working class resident base in it. So. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's quite the story. I bet you have more. We've got, I've got a ton, and uh, it's funny that this trajectory, right? It's like everybody starts in these '60s, '70s high cap rate assets, and then they kind of cut their teeth, and then they kind of go bigger and cleaner, right? I just seen that trajectory. Oh, I see it with us. I see it with all kind of different firms. It's like, yeah, all right, we we made it through the gauntlet. We made investors some money, and we learned a whole lot of things that we don't want to do again, right? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's exactly good. It. That's part of the process. True. Yeah, it's very true. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing assets like that. You know, sure. it, it does take a little more operational rigor to make them happen. But I think you're also able to hire, you, you can hire better with, with the nicer assets. Yeah, right? that's you, right. The, the property management firms that, that you have access to on these more, you know, maybe not luxury, but higher end assets, they're just more, they're more abundant. You know, the, those teams don't want to deal with that either. Right. So, right. Um, that's just the way it is. Yep. Yeah. The whole, the whole kind of team gets a little bit better, right? The team you're able to hire and in the whole, uh, the tenant base, the resident base, whatever it is improves. So what are you guys looking at? You know, we're talking kind of mid 2021 now, what are you guys looking at? You know, what's an ideal deal for your firm to take down now? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're working on something in the the Dalton, Georgia submarket, you know, uh, it's a, it's a kind of submarket of the Chattanooga MSA. We really like the, the Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama regions right now. I think an ideal deal for us is newer than 1980. I, I've not really been excited or successful at buying anything newer than 2004, um, mm-hmm. which is plenty new for us. You know, sure. I, like little, I like a little dirt, little meat on the bone. Right. But we, we really like to see, you know, and I think this is kind of a textbook answer. You know, we like to see that we don't have ancient electric electric uh, electric systems and plumbing systems in there you know no polybutylene no cast iron no no uh, galvanized no aluminum wiring so and we kind of want to make sure the structure is somewhat 
intact, right? So as long as we have something that's really sound there and we can focus on, you know, building the community, you know, improving the resident base uh, and their experience and, and focus on, you know, finishes and getting that to where it wants to be. That's an ideal, uh, an ideal deal. Um, right. We're not, we're not afraid to touch some big ticket items, but those just add risk. And quite frankly, you don't get, you don't, uh, you don't increase your NOI by improving a roof. You know, maybe, maybe there's intangibles. Like if the roof was leaking, people actually will stay in your building if you fix the roof. Right. But you know, you'd rather spend your, your money and your investors money on something you can draw a straight line to the profit it, it produced. So I think our ideal property is one where we spend only money on that and the asset is in good shape. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you've got to have a target and an ideal to, to pursue. And maybe there's 10 um, factors or components of that, the age, the location, and you get, maybe you get seven and you, you know, you make an offer and you, and you get it done and you deal with it, but it is important to have that ideal. I think for people listening that are getting into this uh, you're probably not going to check all 10 boxes, but you know, you at least want to have a target uh, dialed in as much as you can, because that's going to drive your broker conversations. That's going to drive how you raise capital. It's going to drive your whole company um, to at least have the ideal in mind and know that, yeah, reality's not going to perfectly match up, but at least you've got a filter to look through. Uh, so you're not looking at every single deal that hits the desk, you know, that you could, you could spend your whole day sifting through that stuff. That's absolutely right. And you, you know, when I first started out, I mean, I, you know, we had, through our networks, we had sponsorship available to us for, you know, and, and we were given not, you know, we were giving ideas to brokers that, Hey, we'll buy anything from two and a half million to a hundred million. And it's like, well, right. Like, no, that, that's right. not even the same buyer pool. You know, right. So, who, who are you? you yeah. Who are you? you know, all so things, we, all people. Yeah. We didn't really have success. And so we were like, no, th this is the avatar that we're looking for, you know, and, and this is, this is what we're willing to go after. So I couldn't agree more with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So what does, um, what does the firm look like today and how do you guys divvy up duties? Yeah. So Quattro Capital is, is made up of five partners and we actually have something kind of unique called an Alliance partnership program. Um, we set out at the very beginning to not become an, an institution, right? We want to be right. a, a boutique private equity group. And the way that looks is, you know, with the exception of a couple of VAs that are, that are contract, we don't hire employees. You know, we, we have the five managing partners, two of which uh, Aaron Hudson uh, and Maurice Philogene are really our, they really give white glove service and really personalized, you know, um, personalized one-on-one -on -one experience with all of our investors that they are, they're our, you know, client relations group. They focus on all things from, joint venture equity and pref equity groups to down to the individual investor. And we, you sure. know, that's one thing we've, I'm really proud to say, you know, our investors get a white glove experience that, you know, they, they feel like a person and they matter with our group because that's one thing we wanted to make sure we never lost. Right. Um, you know, then we have Kim Winland, who is our asset management director. You know, she's got many, many years of, of global it and project management experience, like in the billion with a B dollar range. Um, so she is definitely best fit for, for managing all the complex things from that perspective of managing our teams. Um, I lead the acquisition phase. So everything from, from the, the inception of broker relationship to the, you know, to the takedown I'm involved with, and even with the deal structures, things of that sort. That's the fun part. That's, that's the, the fun, fun stuff. That's, that's the hunting, right? 
That's right. And then Tammy, uh, Tammy Sutton, who is actually full disclosure. My mother is Tammy Sutton. My aunt is her sister is Kim Winland. So we are, we do have a family. They're the second generation to my third generation in real estate. Right. Industry. Right. Uh, she is what we call our transition manager. So we, we've found out like if you can envision two trains, you know, one of them is the asset management train. The other is the, the acquisition train. And the handoff between those trains is where a lot of projects go off the rails. We no doubt. That. So, you know, we have a, we have designed our company to where we have the acquisitions train that's running. And then eventually the, the, the asset management train catches up. The transitions player helps get, get everything from one train to the other. And then the acquisition train stops and the asset management train takes over. Right. So it, it's, it's really, you know, a big, so she kind of floats between the later end of acquisitions and the early phase of takeover in, in, uh, in, in uh, asset management. So that's how we've kind of structured internally, but you know, how do we manage all these assets we have? Well, our Alliance partnership program is something we, we kind of designed because, you know, as I'm sure you have as well, we, we have found in a lot of these network groups that, we, that we've been a part of, there's, there's a lot of really, really, really cream of the crop people who rise to the top, they, they get through all the material, they're, they're just, you know, but there's a barrier to entry in this, in this business, right? And so we'll start from as little as a sponsorship relationship and then all the way to an alliance partner uh, in different phases. But, you know, if we sponsor a deal that you're doing and we work well together, we'll, we'll move you to an apprenticeship phase. And it's basically on the job training where you are working with us under our direction to follow our systems, processes and procedures. Uh, and then you, you in turn build your business and become savvy and capable. And then you move to the next phase, you know, which is, which is kind of the full-blown branding. So our alliance partners are branded with our Quattro Capital name. When, when, they, when they reach out to people in the industry, they're, they, they're part of us, right? Right. Huge, huge then, leg up. Yeah, huge leg up. So it really builds that credibility. And then, you know, we have a select few who, who we're, just, we're just doing deal after deal with. You know, so we yep. really have expanded our team that way. Sure, it costs us a little bit of equity, but our, we're really lean. Our overhead, our overhead is really low. But and guys, we're helping. We're helping people the way we were helped when we were getting started. That's know? right. So it, it's just I a, love it. it. It's all about it's all about people. You know, you really got to 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 spread the love and make sure you're given a hand up uh, as much as you can. Yeah, that's right. I kind of like to say we're we're all linking a chain, and you know, there's people behind me, but there's a lot of people in front of me that have pulled me along. You know, and right. I think we've all right. kind of got that story, right? Yeah. Um, I like that model a lot. Uh, well, this is awesome, Chad. I, I love what you guys are doing. I love that you shared your story. Um, congratulations on, you know, the the transition to full-time real estate entrepreneur. You know, I think that's a dream for a lot of people and, and um, you know, you made it, you made it happen. Um, so that's, that's outstanding. If somebody listening wants to connect with you, learn more about what you guys are doing, how can they do that? Yeah, the easiest way is to go to our website. That's thequattroway.com. And I'll make sure Devin has that so he can put it in the show notes. But Quattro is Q-U-A-T-T-R-O. Um, and you'll be able to reach out, you know, click on our pictures, reach out to any one of us via social media, email, uh, calendar, whatever you're after. We'd love to have a conversation. You know, we're always really open to even if it's just say hi and talk about real estate a little bit. We love doing that. Um, and I'm also the host of the Real Estate Runway podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and if Devin is, is amenable to it, you may even see him on there soon. Um, Excellent. Let's do it. So, yeah. 
Fantastic. We'll be willing to that in the show notes. And um, you can click right there in the description and, and go to the website and meet Chad and the team. Well, Chad, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Wish you guys continued success here in uh, in the year ahead. Absolutely, Devin. Thank you for uh, thank you for having us on, and look forward to seeing you in the future. All righty, take care. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. Hope you found that educational, entertaining, inspiring, all of the above. If you are interested in seeing future DJE investment projects and you are not already on our list and in our portal, uh, you can go to the website, djetexas.com. There's a little button there to schedule a 15-minute call with our team, answer any questions you have, and make sure you get on that list to see that next project that comes out. Also, if you're interested in being uh, an investor that runs these deals, we've got a free seven-module course for you at apartmenteducators.com. A lot of great free content there to ramp up your education in the multifamily investing space. Once again, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We always appreciate a five-star review that helps the reach of the show. That's one way you can give back if you enjoyed it, and we'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DJE Podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.